Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts, In Conversation. Hi, and welcome to the February 2021 edition of the EVJ podcast, EVJ In Conversation. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. On this episode, we're joined by Harry Carslake discussing equine metabolic syndrome and its risk factors, and Sarah Freeman, who will go through Beaver's recent guidelines on wound management. Harry Carslake is a senior lecturer in equine medicine at Liverpool University and is completing a PhD investigating equine metabolic syndrome. He's joining us to talk about his recent paper titled Equine Metabolic Syndrome in UK Native Ponies and Cobs is Highly Prevalent with Modifiable Risk Factors. Harry, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your recent paper on equine metabolic syndrome. I'm delighted to be here, Rhiannon. Thanks very much for inviting me. Could you start by giving us a summary of EMS and how it manifests clinically? Yeah, so EMS is, like is in the title, it's got syndrome in the title. And um, so it's not a single disease on its own, but it's actually a collection of risk factors for endocrinopathic laminitis. There are several risk factors, but really the most important one, and it's the key factor and the consistent factor, is insulin dysregulation. And for anyone who's not familiar with that term, insulin dysregulation really is an increased circulating concentration of insulin, either at rest or in response to a meal, um, and or insulin resistance in the cells. So that means that the cells of the body don't respond to insulin in a normal way. Um, As far as clinical manifestations of EMS, there's several, but the most severe and important one that we deal with is, is laminitis or or an increased risk of laminitis. So horses with EMS are at increased risk of getting it. Um, and laminitis, we, can, we, we commonly think of laminitis as presenting as a painful horse with obvious bilateral fall-in pain, but actually laminitis can appear in much more subtle ways, and I'll come on to that a bit later, but um, I think that's something we really need to think about is, is how we define laminitis. Um, There are other um, clinical manifestations of EMS, so things like obesity or abnormal metabolic behavior of fat, but really it's the the insulin dysregulation that we're most interested in and and the laminitis that that leads on to. So how do you commonly diagnose EMS in the equine population? So EMS is is a result of a combination, like all diseases really, I suppose, it's it's a combination of a genetic predisposition and then also um, management or environmental factors. And it's probably true that all horses can can get EMS and can get endocrinopathic laminitis, Um, but there are some horses which are much more susceptible than others. And so if we take a breed like the standard bred, which is probably genetically at low risk of EMS, given the right management conditions, um, it can still get EMS and it can still get laminitis. Um, As far as diagnosing it is concerned, really we look at risk factors in the management and on a clinical examination and in the breed. Um, So we know that obese horses are more susceptible to EMS. Um, Horses which are fed high uh, concentrate or high non-structural carbohydrate diets will be as well. Um, And so we can look for those risk factors first of all. But to actually confirm and get a definitive diagnosis of EMS, um, we look for dynamic, for for testing for insulin dysregulation. And there's two ways that we can do that. We can do basal insulin tests, and that can either be after fasting or it can be after feed. 
or we can do dynamic tests. And dynamic tests, we normally give a, a known amount of glucose, either intravenously or orally, and then we look at the insulin response to that glucose. And um, of those tests, really, the, the dynamic oral tests, I think, are the most useful. They're firstly much more convenient for doing in practice, and then it's more physiological as well. So by giving a dose of glucose orally, um, it's probably closer to um, the situation that actually causes laminitis in the horse. Um, and also it includes the important communication that goes on between the gut and the pancreas in response to a meal. So what was the purpose of this study in particular? And how does it fit into what we already um, know about EMS? So this study, we, we aim to estimate the prevalence of EMS in uh, in a population of horses, so we define the population of horses. And so we um, obviously uh, knew, know anecdotally that EMS and endocrinopathic laminitis are reasonably common, but um, it's useful to quantify exactly how common in a population of horses uh, EMS is. And then we looked to identify and quantify risk factors for EMS as well. So by identifying risk factors it allows us to do a few things we can identify horses that are at increased risk of ems and when we know which horses are at increased risk of ems we can then follow up with further targeted testing so things like the oral sugar test or caro test um, to 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 definitively diagnose whether they do have ems and an increased risk of laminitis if further testing isn't an option, and it often isn't for, for owners, they're not willing to um, follow through or pay for further testing, we can, based on the risk factors, we can then we can implement uh, management of EMS on a presumptive diagnosis using those risk factors as well. The other useful thing about determining the risk factors is that we can use them, from, if they're modifiable risk factors, we can use them to um, help with the management of EMS as well. So what were your inclusion criteria for the study? And how many horses did you recruit? So we, we, I'm based at Leehurst, and so obviously we did them within a certain radius of Leehurst. So the furthest that we uh, wanted to travel, we did them within a 75-kilometre radius of Leehurst. And we included um, UK native ponies and their crosses and cobs. And we did it aged between 3 and 14 years old. We kept a fairly, uh, we, we used the younger, slightly younger end of the population to try and avoid uh, interference through PPID and also just to keep a slightly narrower um, population um, in the study. Um, we sampled 354 animals on 64 properties. Um, exclusion criteria and inclusion criteria that we had. So I've, so I've mentioned the inclusion criteria. The exclusion criteria, we excluded horses with PPID. So any horses over the age of 10, we did a basal ACTH um, to exclude those. And we also excluded um, lactating mares or mares in their third trimester of pregnancy because um, that certainly causes um, uh, increased insulin resistance. And then also if horses had obvious laminitic foot pain or they were on medication which could influence insulin sensitivity, such as corticosteroids or uh, metformin or something similar to that. And how did you clinically evaluate them? Um, and what tests did you um, carry out? We asked owners to um, stable their horse the night before and just to give it a single slice of hay. 
So, um, and the anticipation was that the, the horse would eat, consume that slice of hay and then would effectively have been fasted by the time we turned up at 8 a.m. for five or six hours. That would be an approximation. So, so we're dealing with, with horses which were, which were fasted for probably five to six hours. Um, we arrived at about 8 a.m. and we did um, three things. We did an oral glucose test on the horses. So we took a, a basal blood for glucose and insulin and ACTH. Then we fed the horses a meal which contained one gram per kilo of glucose powder within a known amount of low glycemic chaff and a known amount of water. And then we took another blood sample for insulin and glucose at 120 minutes after that meal. Um, in addition to that, we did a clinical examination of the horse. So we focused obviously on, on morphometrics associated with body condition score, cresty neck score. Um, we were particularly interested in hoof scoring. Um, and then also we did a face-to-face -face interview with the owner or keeper of the horse. And that focused on management, exercise, feed, uh, medical history, that kind of thing, um, to um, obviously topics relevant to EMS. So at the end of the study, the, the data we had really was um, historical data from the owner based around um, management, exercise, and medical history. Uh, we had clinical examination data, body condition score, cresty neck, hoof morphometrics, that kind of thing. And then we had uh, glucose and insulin at zero and 120 minutes. And were you able to follow these cases over, over time? That would have been very nice. Um, but no, this was a cross-sectional study. So this was just a single point in time. Um, uh, so no, no, no follow-up. So what did you find the overall prevalence of EMS was in UK breeds? And were you surprised by this or did you expect it? Um, the overall prevalence we found was 23%. So um, obviously the, the prevalence would depend a bit on how you define EMS, um, but we defined it according to the con uh, current consensus statement and we feel that's a pretty robust um, definition of EMS that we use and quite a good test for EMS as well. Um, were we surprised by that? This is approximately what we thought it might be. Um, we thought it was going to be quite high, but I think that high prevalence that we found just reinforces what an important health condition and health issue this is in, in this population of horses. So which age and breed did you find were most at risk? And um, did you feel it represents the whole equine population of the UK? Um, the breed that we found, we found uh, Welsh section A's were at increased risk of EMS compared to the Welsh section B, C, D, Cobbs and Connemara's. Um, so Welsh A's seem to be increased. And, and there have been some other studies which actually have looked at uh, uh, it found an inverse relationship between the, the height of the horse and um, the insulin sensitivity. So the smaller the horses are, are more likely to get it. Um, and um, we found that increasing age was associated with increasing chance of EMS and, and higher postprandial insulin concentrations. Um, is it representative of the whole of the UK? I, I don't know if there's anything particularly different about the Northwest and how the horses are kept. Um, so I would hope that this, these results are applicable to the whole of the UK. And what do you find um, were the risk factors that were associated with this high prevalence? So I mentioned that um, uh, age and breed were uh, associated with an increased prevalence of EMS. Um, interestingly, we found that females actually were at increased risk, and that was including if we excluded um, uh, pregnant mares in the first uh, trimester. 
Um, the, uh, we found some other results which might be uh, unsurprising. We found that there was um, horses with less active main use, so horses which were used for stud or showing or companion were three and a half times more likely to have EMS than horses which were involved in more strenuous main activities, i.e. Uh, riding or driving. Um, we found that horses which were overweight, so body condition of seven or more, were three times more likely to have EMS than horses with body condition scores of less than seven. Um, we found that there were we found two unexpected associations. Actually, we found that horses which were at grass in the summer for less than six hours a day were at increased risk of EMS uh, or increased likelihood of finding EMS. And we found that horses which weren't rugged in winter were also had increased likelihood of EMS. And I think it's important that whenever we do this kind of study, we remember that what we're looking for is an association between these um, risk factors and presence of EMS. So, and it doesn't necessarily mean that there's causation. So it is possible that the owners of horses where they know that they're increased risk of EMS, so for example, an obese horse, will act on common advice, which is to reduce the time at pasture and not to rug them. But there are also possibilities. I, th I think there are some possible um, mechanistic explanations for how those things could increase the risk of EMS, particularly um, not being rugged, increasing the likelihood of EMS. I think that's an interesting area for, for further work. Mm. What association with laminitis did you find? So... Unsurprisingly, um, there was a very strong association with a previous episode of laminitis. Um, so if a horse had had an episode of laminitis in the last five years, it was 14 times more likely to have EMS in this study. So, so that doesn't come as a great surprise, but I think it just reinforces how important it is. If, you're trying, if you see a horse and you're trying to work out the likelihood of it having EMS and, and a risk of laminitis, Asking whether it's had laminitis previously is important. And I think it might help um, with management of, of, of EMS cases. And then possibly also um, situations maybe where you're considering uh, use of corticosteroids or some kind of intervention which might, or turning out onto pasture, something which might increase the risk of laminitis. Another association with laminitis that we found, we, we did a hoof score. So we looked at the, the prominence of the growth rings on the hoof and then also the divergence of the growth rings. And we did a composite score, um, zero to three, based on those two um, uh, hoof wall features. And we found that um, horses with an increased prominence divergence of growth rings were more likely to be EMS positive. Um, and I think that's... Um, quite an important point we always define laminitis as horses which are painful and show bilateral obvious bilateral foot pain but i think actually um you know there's there's some good histological studies that have shown this as well but uh, laminitis um, prominent di and divergent growth rings are also associated with laminitis if you like subclinical laminitis um, and so when you're trying to assess the likelihood of ems in a horse looking at the um the um, prominence and diversion of the growth rings can be use very useful. I think you've partly answered that um, this question in your last answer, but what advice in light of your findings um, can you give to practitioners to aid in reducing EMS and subsequent laminitis? 
Well, I think the key really is, and, and, and I think most people will be aware of this already, but I think it's, it's early detection of horses with EMS before they develop laminitis. Um, so that's the key, um, because once they've got laminitis, there are, there are changes in the hoof capsule. And as we all know, it, it's very difficult to manage horses once they've actually got laminitis. So it's recognition of those horses that are at increased risk. And so I think using the risk factors that have been identified um, for EMS, so breed, increasing age, overweight horses, um, horses which don't have as, as um, strenuous main activities, um, have they had laminitis before? And then also, like I just mentioned, hoof morphology, I think are, are really useful indicators that we can get that maybe we need to implement management for this horse um, or we need to go on with further testing um, with something like a an oral sugar test to really get a definitive diagnosis of whether this horse has does have EMS or not. Um, I think as far as management of EMS is concerned, um, again, I feel like a broken record sometimes, but diet and exercise are the real the the, the pillars of managing EMS. They're the, they're the what we need to focus on, and the objective of those is to is to reduce circulating insulin concentration in these horses and, and by uh, changing the diet and by exercising them, we reduce the insulin dysregulation, we reduce the insulinemic response to feed and so we reduce the, um, the risk of uh, laminitis developing. Would that be your take-home message or do you have an additional one? I think, um, yes, I think the, the, the key... Mate, Take-home message really is is early detection of horses with EMS is is so important really for for horse welfare. Um, I think this study has shown that probably what a lot of people suspected, which is that EMS is common um, in this population of horses, and a large proportion of these horses are at risk of of laminitis um, developing, even if it hasn't yet. Um, the risk factors that we can use um, to to determine whether or not uh, EMS is likely or not and then also we can use some of the modifiable risk factors um, such as exercise where you can use to help management of um, laminitis as well sorry management of EMS as well. Great well Harry we really appreciate you taking time to, to share your research with us. Look, I'm delighted to do so and, and thank you very much to uh, EVJ for putting these on and also to co-authors on the paper as well Gina Pinchbeck Kathy McGowan and um, Beringer Ingelheim, who part-funded the study. Great. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. Sarah Freeman is a professor of veterinary surgery at the University of Nottingham and has overseen an evidence review using the GRADE framework to develop evidence-based guidelines on wound management in the horse. The paper she'll be talking about is titled Beaver Primary Care Clinical Guidelines wound management in the horse. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today and taking time out of your busy schedule um, to talk about this recent paper on wound management. Could you start by telling us how and why this study on wound management came about? Yes, uh, thank you, Rhiannon. So this study was part of um, the Beaver project to develop clinical guidelines to help uh, people in practice. So I was approached by Celia Marr um, to lead this area on wound management um, and to put together a group of people that would help with this. Um, and the, the group of people, we had some volunteers already, but we also wanted to get representatives from different areas of equine practice. 
Um, so Anna Hammond, for example, came with extensive experience of working in ambulatory equine practice. Neil Ashton was our private practice ambulatory and referral representative. Yvonne Else was um, working at Bristol at the time, Anna Hollis at the Animal Health Trust. Um, and Greg Quinn was our international representative because he's currently based in New Zealand. So we tried to put together a range of people that had different backgrounds and experiences to bring to the project. And you rigorously um, analysed the scientific literature, both in human and animal medicine. So what systematic steps did you undertake um, in order to critically analyse these papers? Uh, so our biggest challenge was actually finding the evidence. Um, the first thing we did was look at some of the veterinary systematic review databases and make sure that nobody had already done the work for us. Um, the next thing we did was to um, use a systematic search of the main databases, so Medline and Cab Abstracts, looking for veterinary literature. We, that was the first phase of the project. We then found that actually there was very little veterinary evidence, and so we were going to come up with some fairly limited or, or not very many recommendations. So we then went back to look at the human literature, and we obviously couldn't analyse all of the human literature, so we went to the main databases that look at systematic reviews and make evidence-based recommendations. And we chose three to, to look at and to, to pull the, the main advice and reviews and evidence summaries from there. And that was the Cochrane database, international database. NICE, which is the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, used a lot by the NHS in the UK. And then the JBI, the Joanna Briggs Institute uh, database, which does a lot of systematic reviews and is based in Australia. Okay, so you covered three topics, and these included wound lavage and topical treatments, wound debridement and closure, and therapeutics to enhance wound healing. Um, and you answered questions regarding um, or associated with each topic, having analysed all the literature. So can we start with wound lavage and topical treatments? Um, did you find tap water as effective as saline for flushing wounds in horses? Yeah, so this was one where the human literature became um, very important, so no information in the veterinary literature, um, and we looked at the human studies. Um, this was actually one of my topics suggested when I was driving to work and heard on Radio 4 them discussing the World Health Organization recommendations around the use of tap water um, instead of saline, and I thought it would be interesting to look at the evidence. Um, and the evidence from the human medicine and the recommendations is that tap water is, a, as, is as effective as saline for flushing wounds. So two reviews said it was as effective and one review found that in some circumstances it was actually more effective. The human medicine actually goes further than we do often in veterinary because they look at the cost effectiveness of treatments. So their rationale in human medicine is based on the fact that well, if tap water is as effective as saline, but actually it's cheaper, then that's what we're doing. We should be doing. So our recommendations was it was as effective as, but in human medicine, their recommendations actually is that it should be used in preference because it is cheaper and easier for many people to access. And then you started looking at antiseptic solutions. Um, so did antiseptic solutions for lavage reduce the rate of wound infections? And which was the best antiseptic and at what concentration did you find? 
So this was one where we expected to find a bit more information, um, and there's some some nice studies in terms of experimental studies done in in their labs and in vitro. But we were specifically interested in clinical. Does it actually make a difference in the clinical setting? So we were looking at clinical studies. Again, limited evidence in veterinary, and the main information came from human medicine, where and there was a whole range of different antiseptics. I think there's some really good ones coming up, but we don't have the evidence yet of the clinical difference. So the only real information we could find was around povidone iodine, um, with a recommendation that it may improve or reduce infection rate under some circumstances. But again, not strong evidence for its use. Um, versus just plain, um, yeah, plain solutions. And additionally, did you find topical antimicrobials reduce the rate of wound infection in horses? Um, and on a separate, separate note, um, was there an optimum pressure um, to lavage a wound? So the, the topical antibiotics were again really challenging um, because very small numbers of studies. So we would find a sort of single isolated study that would look at one particular compound, um, but it might be in a different concentration of something else and no additional studies to, to back that up. Um, we ended up focusing on silver for, for, for those. We did find some, some small studies on other, other things like hydrogen, hydrogen peroxide creams. In terms of silver, uh, there's some ev evidence in the veterinary literature that reduces antimicrobial load, but not really enough around the, whether it has a clinical effect on wound healing. We went to the human medicine again um, and found a, a few reviews around that. Um, and they concluded that there was insufficient evidence to recommend the use of, of silver dressings for infected or contaminated wounds. So it's not saying it doesn't work, but it's just when we compare whether we use it or not, does it actually make a clinical difference to our patients? And, and sorry, did you find an optimum pressure at which to lavage wounds? Yeah, sorry, I, think I forgot that one. <laughs> um, yeah, again, I think there's some, there's some really nice laboratory studies, but when I actually look at clinical trials, there was very limited evidence where we couldn't find anything in veterinary. In human medicine, there was quite a nice practical one that concluded that a pressure of 13 PSI, um, and that's really a 12 mil syringe with a 22 gauge needle, was effective at reducing infection, inflammation, lacerations and traumatic wounds. So I'm sure that there are many different pressures that could be tested, but again, human medicine being something that was practical to present in easily practice. The second topic covered wound debridement and closure. So with respect to duration of healing, rate of infection, and cosmetic or functional outcome, did you find sharp debridement, scrub pads, chemical debridement, larvae debridement, or hydrosurgery? to have any effect on these? So we weren't able to look at the sharp debridement because we couldn't find a, a search that gave us some useful information. Um, the scrub pads and the hydrotherapy and the larval debridement, I think we're, we're interested in the areas that are emerging. Um, so we've got some sort of early evidence on those. And again, most of those evidence came from the, from the human medicine. And there was some limited evidence that, that all of those um, can be helpful in terms of managing wounds and some recommendations on the types of wounds that they may help with. So larval debridement um, in veterinary for sort of difficult to access wounds. 
Um, debris soft debridement pads. Um, there is a recommendation in from the from NICE in human medicine about using that for acute and chronic wounds, and that it may be cost saving as well. Um, and hydrotherapy as well. Um, the information came from from NICE around that it may reduce the level of contamination and speed healing for some particular wounds. So the evidence on that's quite early, but there's definitely some evidence it may be helpful under certain certain circumstances. And did the use of staples increase the risk of wound dehiscence compared to closing with sutures? So comparisons of staples and sutures, we couldn't find any data that we could use from either veterinary or human medicine around traumatic wounds. So we looked at surgical wounds, both in veterinary and in human medicine. The two veterinary studies came to opposing um, conclusions. One said staples had more infections and one said sutures. Um, and the human medicine, um, looking at surgical wounds again, said no difference between either of them, which means that vets are free to choose the closure method that they think is most appropriate under those circumstances. Finally, you looked at therapeutics to enhance wound healing. Um, did you find that topically applied manuka honey improved the healing time or cosmetic outcome of contaminated wounds? So manuka honey, we had a couple of studies from veterinary medicine um, and they showed some early phase um, improvements in healing and infection rates. But when you look at the overall final outcome in terms of duration of healing, cosmetic appearance, no difference. In terms of human medicine, the, the search was widened to just normal honey rather than manuka honey because there was limited evidence on manuka honey. Um, and again, there are some specific phases and types of wounds where they may where there is evidence that they may increase the speed of healing. Um, but overall, for the majority of wounds, when you look at the final outcome, they don't make a significant difference at the moment in terms of the evidence for overall wound healing. And you also looked at the use of laser therapy um, or therapeutic ultrasound. Did either of these improve the outcome? So again, no evidence that we could get consistently in veterinary. Um, and there's also currently insufficient evidence in the, in the medical literature as well. So at the moment, insufficient evidence to show that either laser therapy or therapeutic ultrasound will reduce the rate of healing. So these are things that, that hopefully we will get more evidence in the future, which allow us to say, yes, they will be useful or no, they will not be useful. But at the moment, we don't have enough data to, to make those conclusions. So you looked at many different factors of wound management um, in this review. What were the most significant aspects that this study highlighted and has it influenced the way um, you practice or the guidance you give to um, clinicians? Um, yes, it's it's influenced some of the things that, that we do, um, that, that I do, definitely looking at the evidence and thinking about what we're doing. Um, my main... The main things it's, asked, it's changed is how I teach our students and also some of the work that we're doing at the moment with the British Horse Society, developing some guidance for horse owners around wound management. For me, one of the biggest things that I think is most helpful is the tap water versus saline. Um, and if you can have access to clean tap water and start flushing the wound early, then that's something that's very simple and practical for horse owners to put into place. Um, some of the therapeutic stuff has also been quite helpful for me as well. I think silver, topical silver treatments have become 
have become quite popular. Um, and although our study doesn't say you shouldn't use them, I think it just highlights that they shouldn't be used in, indiscriminately across a wide range of cases. The same with use of povidone and iodine, flushing and honey. Um, I think our data shows, or the, the work that we've done shows, is that all of these may have some value, but you need to be very careful about the cases you select um, rather than using them indiscriminately. And again, that's a message I think we want to get across to our students and to our horse owners and to the veteran profession, that there are certain circumstances where they may be helpful, but there's actually a number of circumstances where they may not be any benefit and we need to reserve them for, for, for where they are of most value. Sarah, would that be your take-home message as well, or do you have any any additional messages for us? Um, I think the other take-home message is is that we need more evidence, um, particularly around clinical studies. And a number of topics um, that we looked at, I was familiar with some of the experimental evidence that's done around different antiseptics and antibiotics and wound lavage that's done on cells in a laboratory. But what we're really lacking is whether that actually makes any difference when you're out in practice. And that's where we had to go to a lot of the human literature for that. And I think as a veterinary profession, if we can start developing that, that evidence, um, that would be incredibly helpful. So just because it makes a difference to a few cells in a lab, does it actually make any difference to the wounds that are healing in clinical practice with all of the other factors that are going on? And that would help us make much better evidence-based decisions for the horses that we care for and also for the, for the clients that we're trying to help. Well, fantastic. Thank you again for talking us through um, everything that you found through this review. Thank you. Thanks again for listening and please join us again in two months. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash EVJ.